Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The parole board has released their reasons for denying parole to Paul Bernardo. That was, of course, the uh, hearing that took place a few days ago. Uh, it took them less than an hour, I believe, to actually come to that conclusion that he was not going to be granted parole. Uh, and there's some interesting rationale behind uh, the, the, the the statement, really, that the parole board put out. Susan Claremont, who was there at the time for the hearing, uh, the award-winning columnist, of course, in the Hamilton Spectator, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Susan. How are you doing today? I'm good, Bill. How are you? Good. Listen, i got to ask you right up for a great piece, by the way. It's called Parole Board Releases Reasons for Denying Parole to uh, Bernardo. It's in the spec today. Is, is this usual for the board to actually release a statement like that, explaining their rationale? Yeah, it is. Um, when they, at the hearing itself, uh, all they say is approved or denied with no uh, explanation, and then a written decision comes out uh, usually a couple weeks later. So here we are with this. Uh, any surprises in here as far as you're concerned? Well, yeah, there were some uh, things that came up in the written decisions that we didn't hear about at the hearing. Uh, maybe the most notable is that there appears, we heard at the hearing that he was in some kind of a relationship with a woman in 2014. Um, it was a, a bit um, nebulous about what it was all about, but some kind of a romantic relationship. That ended, but now I've learned uh, from the written decision that he appears to be in a relationship right now with somebody. Uh, yeah, well, the one that was referenced in the at the parole board hearing, I, I, we'd had some inkling of that in the past. Uh, now, from what you wrote in the piece today, Susan, I, I get the impression that they they had access to all the the correspondence back and forth between Bernardo and that woman. Yeah, the way it normally works is um, offenders mail is screened, both incoming and outgoing, uh, to make sure, in part, that he's not corresponding with people that he has um, orders not to contact. So, yeah, prison officials would be aware of, of all of his letters um, that he's writing to anybody on the outside. And, and the, the gist of, of, I guess, the correspondence uh, seems to be, well, Bernardo's the same old Bernardo. He hasn't changed a whole lot since the days we, he was convicted. Right. So in 2014, he had um, a, 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 this relationship with a woman, either um, through phone calls or by letters. And... Um, it's unclear whether they ever met in person or whether they ever had a conjugal visit, but the letters and phone calls were all about sex. And uh, that's deeply concerning when we're talking about a serial sex killer like Paul Bernardo. And according to the parole board, um, it was about, you know, there were fantasies of, of rough sex, um, fantasies that were similar to some of the rapes that Paul Bernardo has admitted to and been convicted of. And that's uh, a big red flag for the parole board. Yeah, as you wrote today, obviously when he was diagnosed, and he's gone through extensive uh, assessments, of course, over the 25 years, uh, as uh, sexual sadistic personality, psychopath, narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, and, and according to uh, what these parole board released, Susan, I guess the letters pretty much substantiated that he's the same way now. Absolutely. Uh, despite the fact that Paul Bernardo insists that he is cured, that's his word, he is cured, um, his behavior, his correspondence, his fantasies um, certainly show that he is not. 
And, and this is what, what I think intrigued an awful lot of us when we read the piece today, Susan, is that when you reported uh, at that hearing, obviously there were some people that, that gave testimony at that, but obviously the parole board had a lot more to go on. They had a lot more information that they didn't readily release that day, but they certainly had, and that was a factor in, in their, their judgment. Right. So that's one of the things that I have a real issue with um, around parole hearings. And um, so, in fact, to the families of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French, uh, parole boards are, are not as open and transparent as they could be or as they should be, I think. Um, they are privy to medical records, psychological records, <clears throat> excuse me, institutional records um, that they are basing their decisions on that the public knows little or nothing at all about. I mean, some of the things that are in this um, written decision that was just released yesterday are things that we didn't hear at the actual parole hearing. And even now, they're, they're very vague. For instance, this current relationship that Paul Bernardo has, I'm unclear as to whether it's with a man or with a woman. It appears to be romantic. I don't know if they've met in real life or if this is all through phone calls and, and correspondence. Um, I don't know if there's conjugal visits. Uh, you know, Paul Bernardo's release plan, if he had, had, in fact, been allowed out by the parole board, which he really didn't have a hope in hell of getting, um, but his plan was to go and live with this friend, apparently, and yet we have no idea who they are. Why not release the information? I mean, now that it's been published in, in this report, uh, I, I understand there's some sense of confidentiality, but it's not as if anything is earth-shaking here. Uh, this is stuff that probably could have been released to the public at that time. Well, I think or, or at least it, to the it, families, anyway. I think it should be released to the public. I mean, we uh, have a right to know exactly how the parole board is, is making its decisions and what it's basing them on. Uh, but what we hear from the parole board and from Correctional Services Canada, which um, also sort of oversees the release of information about Paul Bernardo, is, um, you know, two things, really. One is that there could be security issues, and two that it's an invasion of Paul Bernardo's privacy. And, you know, the security issues, I, I guess I have to um, have to rely on Correctional Services and the Parole Board to know what's best in that regard. But as far as privacy for Paul Bernardo, I think he gave up his right to privacy when he started raping and killing women. Yeah, but if they didn't release it during the hearing, and they didn't, obviously, a lot of this information, yet here it is in the report. So, I mean, well, is the privacy issue that paramount that they, they you know, obviously have forgotten about it already? Well, I mean, some of it is in the report, but yeah. there's still, you know, there's references to things like um, the report talks about, you know, when a uh, psychologist examined Bernardo in whatever year, and he's had many, many of these exams over the years, uh, the, you know, the conclusion was whatever. Um, usually it's that Bernardo should never, ever be released. But we don't actually get to see the report. And, uh, you know, why not? Why not just release all of that information to the public so we can look at it and decide for ourselves? Well, for instance, uh, as you point out in the piece today, Susan, uh, he was a smuggler, too. I, uh, that's information that we did not know during the trial or anything else, and now all of a sudden it's come to pass. The parole board apparently knew about it, but nobody else did. 
Well, I think, in fact, we did know about it, although it's been sort of overtaken by all of his other crimes. Uh, we did know about that 25 years ago when he was arrested, that he was um, he had a secret um, compartment in his car and was smuggling stuff over the border, cigarettes and whatnot over the border. Um, but we have, I think, most of us forgotten about that in, you know, in light of everything else. But the parole board hasn't. The parole board even uh, talked about um, crimes that Bernardo hasn't been officially convicted of, but has admitted to. So they are taking all of that into consideration. But they're also taking things like his his um, psychological and psychiatric records into consideration, and we don't get to see those. How does the family react to something like this? Because I know, and, and you talked to us about that the day of the hearing, uh, they were frustrated as well uh, that they were not getting as much information. I mean, I, you know, I got the impression from some of the comments from both the Mahaffey and the French families that uh, they attended this, but they were still at that point not certain whether or not this guy was actually going to be granted parole. Now when you see this body of evidence that the parole board had, it, it seemed pretty obvious this was never going to happen, but that may have allayed a lot of the concerns and frustrations that those families had if they'd known this information. Yeah, it, it may have. Um, you know, I, I think that they realized it was a long shot for Paul Bernardo. But, um, of course, you know, these families and other victims are not going to take any chances at all. Um, they have the Mahaffey and French families have a lawyer who's been representing them um, around this case for 25 years, Tim Danson yeah, from Toronto. Yeah. And, um you know, the, the families get frustrated at things like Paul Bernardo had his own lawyer sitting beside him at the hearing a couple of weeks ago. But um, Tim Danson, who represents the families, wasn't allowed to say a single word at the hearing. So Paul Bernardo gets that right, um, that privilege, but the families of, of Bernardo's victims do not. It, it's just sort of yet another example of an imbalance in the system. So why don't we have that discussion about, about maybe upgrading and at least reviewing the, the whole parole system? Uh, and I know that every time we have this conversation, it's always after a hearing like this, but the, the furor dies down after two or three days. But clearly, now with the release of this report, I think it underscores the, the need, I would think anyway, to at least to have a review and maybe modify this system. And that's exactly what the Mahaffey and French families are pushing for. In fact, they've uh, aligned themselves with the family um, of a Toronto police officer who was killed in the line of duty 20-plus um, years ago um, to, to you know, go to court um, and demand that the parole board uh, become more transparent and open and to give... Um, uh, victims and their families uh, more of a voice in the whole process and and that's being spearheaded by um, the lawyer Tim Danson so I think we're going to hear a lot more about this issue in in the months to come well I know folks like yourself and others that uh, that follow these sorts of trials have been talking about this for quite some time and uh, obviously the government doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to that but I mean the, the families that are impacted by this now are starting to speak out and as you say with one voice and I'm hoping that's going to have some influence on the government I hope so. I mean, we've seen uh, victims of crime uh, raise their voices and make um, differences in other areas of criminal law. Um, you know, maybe it's time for things to change in the parole system as well. 
Well, and again, it, it just adds to the frustration when we see some of the stuff that was here and, and wondering why this couldn't be released. Uh, you know, it, 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 this is all, we always talk about transparency, and, and I know that becomes almost a catchphrase for some people, but clearly there are certain things going on within the system right now that scream for some sort of review, and, and I think this is a, a classic example of it. I mean, the system is the system. We get that, that even a guy like Bernardo, of course, is entitled to uh, parole hearings, but uh, it would be awfully nice if we had a clear picture as to exactly what his record is and what information they have. Exactly. I mean, you know, you go through um, the criminal justice system, through the, the arrest and the trial process, and although it's not perfect, and I can sometimes be critical there as well, for the most part, it operates on a principle of openness. You know, um, the public can go to court and watch a hearing or a trial rather and, and, you know, be privy to the evidence and the media can report on that. And then you can sort of get to the other end of the criminal justice system, the parole end, and um, there's secrecy once again. So it, it just, you know, it, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to the families. And, you know, in order for... Um, for Canadians to have confidence that the parole system is working, uh, working well and working in the way that it should, we need to understand how it works and how its decisions are made. And we can't do that unless we know what's going on behind the scenes. Well, exactly. And I know that there's a frustration sometimes during trials uh, with publication bans and things of that nature. And, and the justification usually is, well, it could influence the jury. Or, so, so, you know, we don't want anybody to, to get this information. But I don't see that same rule applying here. I mean, this is, uh, you don't get to adjudicate in this, and neither does anybody else that's attending that. But it'd be good to know that information and have a full picture on this. Uh, and, it, and again, it comes down to that word transparency. Absolutely. Um, you know, if, if there are legitimate security issues, um, then, you know, I will bow to that. And, and I understand that, you know, when you're talking about a prison system, that, that is a, a legitimate concern. But when it comes to Paul Bernardo's privacy, I mean, where, why would he have privacy rights at this point? You know, um, what gives him the, um, the privilege of, of having privacy when he is a convicted killer, a convicted rapist, and a designated dangerous offender. Um, you know, I, I just I have a hard time with that, and obviously the families do as well. Uh, I think the public at large has a, a hard time with it at the same time. Look, there's been so much criticism about parole board decisions over the last number of years, and, and obviously they're trying to justify their existence and say, no, 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 we've got this under control. The best way to try to gain some confidence, and, and maybe for public confidence in this, is, is to be more forthcoming with information. Absolutely. I mean, technically, parole board hearings are open to the public. Um, but in fact, um, the public doesn't go to them. It, there are a lot of hoops that you have to jump through to be approved as a um, an observer at a hearing. And um, the Bernardo hearing from a couple of weeks ago is the first time, I think, in, in all the years that I've been covering hearings, and I go to quite a few of them every year, the first time that I've ever been there with any other media. Normally, I'm there. It's me and maybe um, uh, the family or um, a victim. But essentially, nobody goes to these things. So they are kind of shrouded in mystery. Well, hopefully, uh, the piece that you've written today and, and the outcry that we've heard over the last couple of weeks will change some of that. Susan, as always, thanks so much for this. I really appreciate the time today. 
Thanks a lot, Bill. Take care. Susan Claremont, of course, the award-winning columnist with the Hamilton Spectator. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting twist on what's going on here. Now, we know that ever since the uh, trade deal was signed, the USMCA trade deal was signed, uh, well, not signed, but agreed to anyway a couple of weeks ago, it still has to be ratified, uh, there has been some concern here about the fact that the steel and aluminum tariffs are still in place. And I know the opposition has been going after the prime minister and saying, you don't sign this deal until you get those things gone. We're told negotiations are going on. But now the uh, Mexican trade minister is uh, urging all of the parties not to sign the deal until the U.S. removes those tariffs. Are we at a stalemate here? I'm not so sure. Uh, joining us to talk about this, Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at uh, Carleton University. Ian, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Uh, my pleasure, Bill. I, I, listen, I understand the sentiments of the uh, the trade minister from Mexico and, and even the opposition parties here, but do we really have that kind of muscle that we can demand this? Um, I don't think so. Uh, I don't. I mean, that's just the reality. They're, you know, they're ten times larger than we are. They're the world superpower. There's just no way around that. Uh, even more, co- what even complicates this uh, to a much greater degree is that the off-year elections are in, what, seven days, six yeah, days, yeah. Tuesday. And if the polls are correct, and the polls, uh, and I don't mean one poll, these are week after week after week are predicting that the, that the Democratic Party is going to regain control of the House of Representatives. That's absolutely crucial because they have to ratify this new agreement, the new NAFTA, let's call it. And the Democratic party record for the past 30 years on North American free trade agreements has been absolutely negative. That is to say, they've always voted it down. Bill Clinton only got NAFTA through, the Democratic President Bill Clinton, only got NAFTA through in 1993 because the Republicans supported him. The Democrats went against their own president and voted against NAFTA. And there are, I think there's still a lot of people in the Democratic Party who will be more than willing to vote down the new NAFTA, even without the issue of the tariffs. So I I think both Mexico and Canada are risking um, kicking sand in the bully's face um, or pouring oil on on the fire uh, by, by saying, well, we want those tariffs removed. I agree. I think they should have negotiated. They shouldn't have agreed to the deal until the tariffs came off. I mean, I can't see how you can have a trade agreement with tariffs on. I mean, the whole point of a trade agreement is to eliminate tariffs, but they did. And now we're faced with an imperfect solution uh, situation, and I'm not sure that saying, oh, wait a minute, now we've changed our mind about signing, because that's just going to give a golden opportunity to Democratic congressmen and women who don't like NAFTA to begin with. It's going to give them an excuse to shoot it down. We tend to, I guess, ignore a lot of the history, and I'm glad you brought that up, because this uh, protectionist uh, policy that that Trump obviously adheres to is not new to Americans, isn't it? This has been going on for a long time. It it certainly has. It's been going on for... I would say at least 25, 30 years, really since the mid-80s and the uh, Reagan years. Um, and the, there's, a, there's a significant, uh, I mean, there's a division within the, the, the Democratic Party, just like there is in Canada and the Liberal Party, and for the Conservative Party, for that matter. But let's just stick with the Liberals. You know, in Canada, we talk about the blue Liberals or the pro-business Liberals, and then the red Liberals, who are the so-called social justice-type Liberals, who want a lot more social spending. Well, in the States, you've got the blue dog Democrats, who are business liberals, and then you've got the much more um, liberal uh, liberals, if I can put it that way, who are opposed to trade agreements. They don't like trade agreements. 
and they they're they're hostile to business for that matter. And you get a lot of them in California and in the Northeast, in the um, in the New England states, and and that's really the base and the core of the Democratic Party. And there's a lot of opposition to trade agreements generally. They were opposed to TPP, and they're opposed to NAFTA. So uh, I I think that this is potentially becoming very messy very quickly because the new congress is sworn in in january so we're only talking six or seven weeks away and as i said it could be democratic and now we're saying well we're not necessarily going to sign until the tariffs come off and the democrats say maybe saying well we don't want to sign at all period and we may wake up in six weeks from now and find we don't have a, a trade agreement after all so this, yeah, this thing could blow up. What oh, yes. you're talking about a possible change in government, maybe even a likely change, at least in the Congress, anyway, in the states. Yes. Uh, but we also have to keep in mind, I guess, Ian, that and uh, in, in I guess about a month now, the first of December, uh, there's a change in government in Mexico. How's that going to impact this? Exactly. And the new guy coming in seems to be much more left nationalist as opposed to right wing nationalist like Trump um, or populist, if you want to call it that. And and so he is not going to be want to be perceived at all at all at all to be pushed around by the American bully, the American gringo bully, and uh, to use the slang uh, language that uh, some Mexicans use to describe the U.S. And so that's going to complicate it even more. That produces and introduces another layer of complexity that's going to make this, I think, messier. And if right now I was a betting person, and I'm not. Uh, but if I was, I would say the chances of that actually going into law, the new NAFTA, are right now at best 50-50. I, I'm trying to peel through some of the rhetoric here, too. Uh, and uh, Kelly Kraft, who's the U.S. ambassador to Canada, uh, was speaking uh, at, a, I guess it was a Chamber of Commerce meeting, uh, and says that, look, don't take it personally, that uh, President Trump is reviewing the tariffs, and he says it's not really against Canada or Mexico, it's to protect from foreign investment. We, I, they talk in China here, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but how can you not take it personally when he's imposing these on Canada and Mexico, who are supposed to be the trading partners in this deal? Well, that's exactly the point. That is exactly the point. I mean, I, I do believe that they can do more surgical um, retaliation against China. I, I don't accept his argument that, that we're just collateral damage. They can structure this if they really wanted to, uh, to really just go after China, not Canada or Mexico. Uh, but I also think it's getting caught up in, in politics. That is to say, Trump is running as the I'm here to protect you uh, from uh, all the uh, countries of the world that are exploiting us and taking advantage of us. So, I mean, there is a, a a political component to this. It's part of his campaign strategy for this year's off-year election, but not just this year's off-year election, which are over next week. <laughs> He's already running again for re-election as the president in the fall of 2020, which is two years from now, almost two years to the day. And he wants to build the brand, his brand, as I'm the guy who's going to protect you. And it's not those those other guys in the other party, and and so this is not going to stop uh, next Tuesday when the election when the off year elections are over are finished. It's going to, if anything, uh, continue over the next two years as he continues to seek reelection by building that that reputation as the guy that's going to protect uh, people in the Rust Belt area. Right. I mean, he's never stopped running, really, from the, the day he got elected Precisely. two years ago. I mean, he, you know, he, he goes to rallies almost three or four times a week now. That's, exactly. that's what it's all about. He's in, he's in campaign mode all the time. Right. Right. Always right. has been. Let's, is, uh, maybe I'm reading in between the lines here, Ian, but is there maybe an underlying uh, problem here that, that nobody seems to want to talk about is that now we've read some of the details of this deal that maybe none of the three countries even like much uh, about what's, what was agreed 
agreed to in the first place? Uh, that could have that could be very much so. I mean, there's an increasing blowback in Canada, as we know. Uh, there's things in there that people are starting to discover and that they don't like. And of course, the the, the thing about trade agreements is that the the winners are widely diffused. That is to say, the people that benefit from a free trade agreement, there's large numbers, and the benefit is relatively small per person. So they're not going to go out and mobilize and protest in favor of. So the people that are going to protest against, who have much more motivation, are the people who where the losses are. Concentrated, you know, it could be unions, for example. And so there's the way that the, it works is that there's there's more payoff, if I can put it that way, more political payoff, more benefit to be protesting and trying to stop one of these agreements than trying to support one of these agreements. So it has lots of enemies and not very many supporters, in the sense of people who will show up on a picket line or show up at a protest movement. And so you know, you the, the odds are stacked against trade agreements, generally speaking. And in this instance, it, because of the particular politics that we've just discussed, you know, the incoming president who's significantly left the center in Mexico, we have a much more um, liberal government in Ottawa, progressive government, self-styled progressive government, and then Trump, and then all the politics in the states that about over trade, and it's making it, I think, more and more difficult. We thought we'd put it all to bed about two weeks ago, and now we're finding that the whole thing is held together by some very, very uh, uh, slender threads of silk uh, that could rupture very quickly. Well, the basic tenet of agreements, as you and I have talked about over the years now, is look at you have to give and take. And I think a lot of analysts, and certainly from what we're hearing from the Mexican delegation, maybe it's going on down there too, have analyzed this deal and said, look, we gave up an awful lot. We don't see that we got much in return. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, I mean, I, I am of that camp that, that I believe the trade agreements are always in everybody's interest, even if some people individually do lose. The net-net gain overall to everybody is, is superior to the loss. But the losses are very visible, whereas the gains are not highly visible. And that means then that there's a greater incentive to protest and try to kill uh, the deal. And and as I said, that's why I am, I'm not trying to be, you know, dark and black or anything on this. It's just that I, I just see an awful lot of storm clouds over this new NAFTA, and I do not think by any stretch of the imagination it's yet a done deal. Uh, given the new president coming into Mexico, given the Congress probably going to flip or, or turn to the Dems uh, in seven days' time. And if all those happen, uh, those things uh, uh, unfold like that, then I think it's uh, more likely that it will get shot down, unlikely it will be supported. So where does that leave us? I mean, because the ratification wasn't going to take place until the new year anyway, uh, with yeah. the, the new Congress, as you mentioned, and whatever's going to be happening in, in Mexico. Uh, but I'm not so sure that even our government is going to be that uh, that uh, much of in a hurry to do something like this. I mean, they've got an election coming up, too. And if this is deemed to be an, an unfavorable deal by an awful lot of the people in this country right now, I'm not so sure that we'll sign. I, I'm agreeing with you, but we have to be very careful, you know, that old... Chinese uh, proverb, be, be careful of what you wish for, for you may get it. Yeah. I mean by that, that if, let's do a, um, you know, what if scenario, let's say it does get shot down, let's say the Congress, the U.S. Congress doesn't ratify it. Uh, I think that that would motivate Mr. Trump to use executive orders at the border to slow down the border. He can, through executive order, instruct Homeland Security and borders the borders people in the U.S. government to inspire. I'll give you an example. You must inspect every truck going through the border. Every last truck must be inspected by hand. Well, you could shut down that border tomorrow morning. I mean, you could make a, a lineup that goes 10 miles into downtown Toronto from the, uh, from the border of Buffalo 
or the the border around Detroit and Windsor. You could you could have a ten mile long uh, bor- uh, uh, lineup just by enforcing, and he has the authority to do that. And if his goal or game is to show he's standing up for American workers, and the NAFTA deal gets shot down, the one he claims is a much better deal now because he negotiated it, well then he's got some other tricks up his sleeve. So we have to be really careful about what we do reject because you know we may get something worse. You know, the bad as it is, uh, we may think it's pretty bad. If we shoot it down, he he can get nasty because he has executive control over the borders. It's administered by the U.S. government, and the U.S. government departments report to the president, not the Congress. Well, and if there is one country that is satisfied with the deal, it's it's the Americans, obviously, and Trump, because yeah. he got just about everything he asked for here. Exactly. Uh, I know that the Mexican delegation, when they were in Ottawa yesterday, uh, they brought up this whole idea again about uh, you know being able to opt out if uh, one of the parties agrees to a, a, a trade deal with one of the non-market economies. And even the Mexican delegation said, we didn't want that in there, and certainly Canada didn't want it in there, so you know where it came from. And, and that, that could be the poison pill. Exactly, exactly. And it, this is why this whole thing is so fraught. I mean, people think it's just about a trade agreement. Well, it's not just about a trade agreement. It's about getting stuff across the border. <laughs> and, you know, if, we, if he wants to get really nasty, it's not just tr- tariffs. People think, oh, well, there's tariffs and there's trade agreements and that's it. He can, he can have every truck searched. He could say, I want every parcel, every box on every truck search. I mean, he could literally close down that border. I mean, and it would kill, I mean, over $2 billion a day cross that border from Canada into the U.S. And it's through about three border points, three or four border points. So it's not as if there's hundreds of border points to control. I mean, it's the really big ones. And uh, the obvious one is the one at Vancouver, the one at uh, Detroit-Windsor, and it would just be absolutely devastating to us. So we have to be walked very, very carefully on this, much as we may dislike the uh, current new NAFTA. Well, and, you know, let's, let's bring back the, uh, uh, let's, one of the things that was being held over our heads in, in the past, and that, of course, was possible tariffs on the auto sector. Uh, I mean, if the U.S. doesn't get this deal, and if Trump doesn't get the signatures from Mexico and Canada, you've got to figure that there's going to be some sort of retribution here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that's what worries me. And that's what worries me, because he's not doing well in the polls. So he's going to, I think, double down on what he's doing. He's not going to do an about-face and say, gee whiz, I've been wrong for the last two years. I'm going to do something completely different. He's going to double down on what he's doing and try and show that he's even tougher and stronger and, and more willing to protect the American interest. And that means whacking Canada and whacking Mexico, however he decides he wants to whack us uh, or hit us. Uh, but he wants it to be visible and political, and so that you know everybody's talking about it, and everybody says, "Oh, look at that Trump, you know, standing up for us, you know, in the Rust Belt states." And that is my fear: is is that if we do, uh, if the new NAFTA is shot down for whatever reason, then watch out because I think the knock-on consequences are going to get worse, not better. Well, and we've seen that with some of the reports uh, of what's happened, you know, because the tariffs have been in place for a, a little bit of time now anyway. Yeah. And apparently they are having an impact, especially in some of those Rust Belt states of, through Michigan and, and parts of Ohio. Uh, but they're not blaming him. Uh, they, uh, exactly. You know, the, the, the Republicans that are running there, it says, well, blame Canada, blame Mexico. That's, they're the ones that are doing this to us. And, yeah. and they yeah. seem to be eating that up. Yes. I mean, he has... He has um, I think Canadians don't realize because we see the you know the CNNs and the Washington Post and the New York Times and they're all uniformly against Trump, and they think nobody supports Trump. But out there in the Rust Belt states, there is enormous support for him. There, you know, it, it, he's running 
40-odd percent in the polls. That's an awful lot of Americans. You know, it's not a majority, but my goodness me. And and you get into the rural, quasi-rural, um, you know, and you get into a place like Cleveland, Ohio, and Toledo, you know, manufacturing uh, cities and, and states like Ohio, and very strong support for Trump. Uh, and 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 that's that's not changing, and they're not going to because of who are they? They're certainly not going to support the Democrats because they're these are very conservative people. So they they found their guy, and they're going to keep supporting him. And so he's going to be doubling down on this kind of rhetoric and these kinds of actions. And we are going to bear the price. We're going to bear the burden, and it's going to fall on us. So Mr. Trudeau and, and Ms. Freeland are going to have to tread very very carefully on this. With everything in mind like this, then, Ian, can we assume now that this uh, tariff uh, circumstance is not going to be lifted until we sign the deal? In other words, you put your signature then, we'll lift the tariffs, but not until then. He's, I, he still wants view. to have that as a hammer, doesn't he? That, that's my view. I think he really wants to, um, I don't know, humiliate is probably too strong a word, but he wants to, everyone to understand that he won and we lost. <laughs> and he wants his own voters. And then so he's going to say, you sign the deal, then we can talk about the tariffs, and I'll take them off in my own sweet time. So, I, I, again, I think it's partly to send signals to his base that he is going to be fighting for them, you know, till the cows come home, as the, old, as the phrase goes. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business. Uh, thanks, as always, Ian. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks very much, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting uh, development in uh, what's happening with the light rail transit discussion. Hamilton's anchor institution leadership has issued a letter publicly urging the mayor and the members of the new council to move forward with uh, the BLAST network, uh, also urging them to get approval of the LRT operating agreement with uh, Metrolinx, of course. Keenan Loomis, President and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, is with us here in studio to talk about this. Happy Halloween. Good to have you here today. Yeah, happy Halloween to you, too. Who, who Thanks, thinks of these names, up, by the way? I'm always intrigued by acronyms. Uh, this is a great organization, by the way, the Hamilton Anchor Institution Leadership, and, of course, the acronym is HALE. All right. You get, so you got to have something like that. Right, yeah. Well, well, you start, you start with the acronym, and then you work backwards. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so whoever did this one, I hope you gave them the rest of the day <laughs> off. A nice idea. But this is this is a pretty powerful team. Yeah, well, it is a powerful team. Obviously, when you, you look at the names attached to this letter and you think of the tens of thousands of, uh, of employees and, and people that are served by these institutions, um, this is a very unprecedented uh, step for you know the anchor institutions to speak out in this way. As we know, um, it was early last year when the environmental assessment uh, was in front of city council and, you know, there was some delay there and and uh, and ultimately, you know, the the project, you know, was was in jeopardy at that point in time. And the anchor institutions uh, signed a letter that uh, urged council to go forward with the blast network. And I think that was a, a very decisive uh, step. That was, uh, was something that helped uh, get us to the ten five vote in council uh, that we needed to to pass that environmental assessment and and to be able to provide it onto the province. So the next stop. The next big agreement, the next uh, big uh, hurdle for the project is the operating agreement. Um, and uh, so first we need the uh, consortia that is going to come uh, together to uh, build this project. We need them to be identified. And, and so that's why uh, Hale also asked for uh, Metrolinx and Infrastructure Ontario to set a date for the uh, the RFPs to be submitted so that we can get on with this project. But, but we think that, you know, we have had a little bit of delay 
Um, there was some some delay caused by, you know, uh, the the labor forces within uh, the community that wanted to make sure that this was uh, going to be a unionized project, and and they certainly got assurances that that was the case. Uh, so that caused a, a little bit of delay, but uh, certainly we can get shovels in the ground by the end of 2019 if we go forward. And so that's what Hale wants to do. Well, and and obviously, well, the other delay obviously was city council itself at the yeah. election, but I mean, we knew that was going to come. Right. Uh, the problem I've got, if, of course, uh, uh, even with the new legislation here, they moved the election date up to October, which was a good thing to do. But uh, the swearing-in doesn't happen until the first week of December. So there, there's, we're in limbo here right now where you can't really get anything done. And yeah. that, that's got to be frustrating. Well, it, yeah, but um, but it's not in, in City Hall's court at this point yeah. in time. It is in uh, Infrastructure Ontario and, and Metrolinx's hands. And so, um, well, in the province, really. Uh, and I'm sure they want to get the go-ahead as well from uh, provincial uh, officials uh, to go forward. But again, uh, the three consortia have already been uh, shortlisted. And so they're ready to go. They've probably got uh, their bids um, pretty much done. And they w- themselves were, were waiting the outcome of the uh, municipal election. But, uh, you know, everybody, including the province, saw that uh, the mayor won, uh, Mayor Eisenberger won very decisively in uh, an election that uh, the anti-LRT folks were, were trying to make a referendum about this project. And, and so that was noted um, within the province and, and uh, within Hale as well. And, and so we urge uh, city council to make this a top priority when they do uh, gather in uh, December 3rd. Is there still some consternation about this, Keenan, that, uh, that this council may reverse this, this poll idea? Well, I I think there is obviously there's there is some political work left to be done, not just in uh, City Hall but uh, within Queens Park as well. But for the most part, like I said, um, Mayor Eisenberger won re-election very decisively, and um, and that's a clear indicator uh, for us and and for the province and and everybody else that uh, you know people want to get on with this. You know, we've been talking about this for a lo- really long time. We've we spent ten years planning for this. We've spent over a hundred million dollars in planning for this, um, and you know there is a much broader twenty-five year strategy that this is a part of, and so you know in in that's why you know you. You see institutions that aren't necessarily going to benefit from the Beeline LRT stepping up and, and supporting this project because it is about the, the BLAST 25-year transit strategy. And the Beeline, of course, is, is the very first step in, in the BLAST network. And, and I always equate this with the the uh, expressway debate. Now, you weren't here for that. Uh, thankfully, you thankfully, should. Thankfully. Yeah. yeah, you should thank God for <laughs> no that surprise. every day of your life because uh, it dragged on for about 45 years. But the, the issue always was, well, it's going to be out in the east end of the city. Why should I support that if I live in the west end or if I live in Dundas and Waterdown? There are always going to be people like that. This yeah. is never going to have unanimous consent. No project does. And and right. council's got to get their head around that, yeah. that this is never going to be a, a, a 15 to nothing vote on this. There's always going to be some dissenters. And God bless them. That's, that's what democracy is all about. But I think what we want this council to do, just as they did with the expressway finally, was look at the common good for the community. Right. And they did that. And we've already seen the benefits of that with the economic growth that's happened up in Stony Creek Mountain uh, because of the, the fact that we finally got the expressway done. And they've got to take that same attitude towards this project. Yeah. Well, I, I've said it all along. These are 
are the types of projects, the types of big initiatives where you have to take off your, your ward hat and put on your board hat and understand you're a director of the corporation of the city of Hamilton. And of course, you wouldn't turn down a $1 billion investment and opportunity to, to upgrade your transit uh, to uh, you know a 21st century system. So from that perspective, yeah, it, it would be um, it, this is definitely the right thing to do. And, and again, we've spent 10 years planning this. Experts and, and engineers and, and, and transit professionals and, and, and so many others have, have looked at this, have, have, have made this the best project that we can. And it's, uh, it's you know, we're within one year of, of really getting shovels in the ground on this. So we're, it's, it's exciting, actually, that um, in, in last week's election really was a clarifying moment for that. And so uh, we wanted to make sure that we uh, took advantage of the momentum and, and that we made a, a really important um, and, like I said, unprecedented statement uh, this soon after the election. Your partners, obviously, the Chamber of Commerce being one of these, of course, ArcelorMittal DeFasco, uh, the Hamilton Community Foundation, Hamilton Health Sciences, St. Joe's, Mohawk, McMaster, the uh, Board of Education, and uh, the Hamilton Spectator. They're, they're the ones that make up this uh, anchor institution leadership, Hamilton Anchor Institute leadership. Uh, and as you mentioned, that, that speaks for an awful lot of people that are employed by those. But what they're looking at here, and because we've talked to most of the, uh, the representatives of all of those organizations, is they're looking for city building. Right. And, uh, and that's really, that's the job of the city council. Yeah. I know there are ward healers on that council that just want to look at what's going on and, yeah, we'll fix the broken sidewalk and we'll do this. And yeah, that's part of the job. But you also have a responsibility as a city councilor to look at the big picture. And uh, I think a lot of them did that when they had that vote last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them had to look within themselves, and, yeah. and, and, and I, I applaud them for doing that. And I think they have to have that same attitude here. Yeah. Well, a lot of this is about what type of culture do we want to, to be in in the city? What type of culture do we want to pervade? throughout all of our decision-making. Do we want to be a city of, of no or a city of yes? And again, many of these institutions, they're not necessarily on the Beeline uh, LRT, but they know that they themselves have to innovate. Uh, think about the hospitals in particular and the educational institutions and, and the dollars that are are diminishing from the province and and the the requirements for innovation um, that, uh, that they have, the mandate uh, to innovate. And so do they want to uh, you know, present to a council that's open and 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 sees the big picture and and is visionary and allows them to do the things that they need to do, um, or do they want to uh, you know operate within a culture of of, of no, and so. You know, this is this is a really important shift uh, for the city, um, and I think it's it's the right one. And and this is exactly what you know. Th- this is exactly the type of moment that these institutions like these um, that are so important to our community step up. And like I said, this is the the type of uh, of project in which the councilors understand that uh, they do have to make their decisions uh, with the greater good in mind. I've talked to some of the new counselors, and I don't know if you've had the opportunity to do that uh, as of yet. Uh, and and obviously, some of them are, are you know you know pretty much in line here. But I, I got the sense from a couple of them that they said, "Well, we, you know, we want to learn what we can." I said, "Yeah, that, you know what? You should have done that before." Yeah. I mean, how can you not be informed about what's gone on here? All the information is out there. Yeah. Well, we can quickly get you up to speed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I I will volunteer for that. Um, and you know, I, I've found that that most people, you, you sit down and talk to them, you know, for a half hour about uh, all the planning that's gone into this, and and you know, you, you clarify some of the misconceptions that they might have. 
have. And of course, you know, they've heard some information that ultimately is, is not true, um, you know, from the other side, people who are trying to, you know, throw sand in the gears here. Um, and, and I find most people come away understanding, okay, yeah, this is absolutely the, the right thing that we need to do. And so, you know, these counselors, they're, they're no different than that. And I've found that uh, most of them are really good and, and open-minded about these types of things. Uh, you mentioned the province, uh, and there's some work to do at that stage, too. And, and I know what's happened here in the past, of course, that uh, that uh, Doug Ford has said, yeah, you can have the money one way or another. Uh, they, they seem to be hedging a little bit on that now. They said the money was for transit. Uh, some people are still hanging on to that. Uh, the, the way I would think we have to approach this, and I hope council approaches it in this fashion, is let's do what we need to do and, and let them worry about what they're going to do in Queen's Park. I mean, there's going to be a, a provincial budget in the spring, and there always is, mm-hmm. and they'll make announcements about spending at that stage. We don't want to make sure we're on that list, but if we're dragging our heels or saying, well, we're not so sure about that, we're not going to make the cut. Right, and that's why this was important, too, because the province is now working on, you know, they, they've been very busy um, doing some some really great things, I, things that I, I think are absolutely necessary, certainly in the, in, um, the reduction of red tape, for example. Um, so they've been busy. They've been themselves waiting for the outcome of all the municipal elections across the province. And now they're working on um, their uh, their letters of engagement with each of the municipalities. So they're they're trying to come to um, and, and, and refine their stance on a whole range of, of infrastructure projects that are happening across the province. And so Hamilton LRT is just one of those. Um, what we have to understand is that there is policy and there are politics. Um, two entirely different things. And I know that the policy-minded folks, and, and there are a great number of, of really incredible policy-minded folks that are part of this government, um, people who want to build transit uh, regionally and, and, and locally um, because they understand the the economic development that these types of things unlock and, and how important it is for um, employers to be able to get their employees um, from place to place across the region as well. So the, the policy-minded folks uh, within the government are very inclined to continue going forward on this. The politics, which you know I have I have less of an insight into, um, that's a whole different uh, side of the equation, and and we just hope to that you know cooler heads prevail on uh, on these types of things. Yeah, and whatever is going to happen is going to happen. But the th- the reality here is that no government uh, in, in Queens Park is going to commit to a long long term and an expensive project like this if the city doesn't have their act together. That's right. Uh, they they they're not going to s- set a billion dollars aside and. Say Simply say, okay, you guys let us know when you're ready, or if you decide what you're going to do, we'll just leave it here. Right. They want to spend it. Yep. They've got to spend it because they want to get a return on that. And if we're not ready, uh, we lose. I mean, that's what it comes down to because right. it's going to go someplace else. I mean, that's the argument. Yeah, and and we can control what we can control here in in uh, Hamilton, um, and then uh, again uh, work uh, the 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 levers that we can. Um, within the province as well, but uh, like I said, this is this is what we felt as institutions in the city. Um, what we felt we could do, we 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 wanted to say something. We we already have. Um, it was time to reiterate our support uh, for this project and and hope that uh, the message is loud and clear within City Hall and in uh, Queens Park as well. Well, the other message here is that you know we've talked about this group here, the the Hamilton Anchor Institution leadership. 
Uh, but they're not the only ones. I mean, no. th- this is that one organization yeah. that have come together and said we need to speak with one voice. But you, you talk to Joe Manson, Le- yeah. Leuna, and a number of other organizations, and they're fully supportive of this and want to get moving on it. Yeah, well, think of that uh, the poster that Graham Crawford did uh, about uh, all the, the entities and, and companies and organizations that support LRT. You know, that, that large poster of all the logos, I think we're up to well over a couple hundred now. Um, and many, many of the of the largest employers uh, within Hamilton. So you know, you're talking uh, uh, Grupo Bimbo uh, that now owns Canada Bread and, and Stackpole and um, and, and uh, Felfab and uh, you know Fox Forty and 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 Fluke and and all of those companies are in support of this project. And you can find all of their their logos on that um, that uh, it's a poster that continues to grow. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what uh, the, the latest download of, of, of logos, but I know that there are dozens and dozens constantly being added. So the groups are, are very diverse. So not only those uh, that have lent uh, their logo to that poster campaign, but um, the environmental groups, the transit user groups, you mentioned uh, the, the unions in town, the, the labor groups, um, the, the um, McMaster Students Association and, and uh, the Mohawk Students Union, all of those entities uh, have supported this project in the past. We're delegators um, when the EA was in front of council last year. Um, we'll are, are standing ready to delegate when they need to as well um, with the new council. Hopefully we don't have to, though. Hopefully it's clear for them that, um, you know, this is the case where, again, Understand, you have a lot of support here. It might not necessarily be support from within your own ward because, you know, you're in a corner of the city that might not see the benefits of this or, or you can't clearly see the benefits of this. But understand, there is a ton of support within this community, and that's exactly what you're going to need to be able to get through the challenges of of um, construction as well. So we're we're all on board, and, um, and I think that this is a really good time. This is going to be um, uh, one of those moments, one of those uh, really defining periods of time for Hamilton that, uh, you know, yeah, it's going to be a challenge, but once we get through this, um, it's going to be incredible to see what the city can do after this project is built. Kenny Loomis, uh, President and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, as always, thanks and uh, continue good luck with this. Yeah, thanks, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.